Yeah, I'm going to sit down if you don't mind. Uh, feels kind of strange, actually. Um, do you like the chair I picked? When I, uh, sorry, when, when I, after I became a believer and we were in, I was in my church in Hayes and then went to Bible college in Missouri and there were a lot of big Baptist church there. And I noticed one thing about all the big Baptist church is they all had thrones up front. And I'm like, that's what a pastor needs is a throne, right? <laughs> so next week I'll have a crown and a diadem and so all of that. Um, yeah, Brent and I were actually talking about whether I would stand or sit this week. And he's like, well, you can't sit. I mean, Jesus preached from a pulpit, right? Uh, they, they lugged that giant thing around everywhere they went in Israel. Uh, yeah, we, we kind of concluded it was Judas' job to carry it, and that's part of the reason he was upset and kind of blew Jesus off, as he was the one toting the pulpit around. Um, yeah, before I get into this week's psalm, which is 126, um, one quick thing. I appreciate Corey preaching for me last week, and he preached on Psalm 139, which is a really powerful psalm, Right? Um, I wasn't here. He said he was going to do 139. I assume he did. Okay. I was afraid I might get blank stares, like maybe he, he changed or something. That's a powerful psalm because it talks about how God knit me in my mother's womb, right? That he wonderfully designed me. He was intricately involved in my creation. And because of that psalm and some other places, we believe um, that all life is from God, Right? From womb to tomb, we're convinced of that, and we stand on that. That's like bedrock for us. Um, scripture affirms life, that every child, that even the unborn are designed by God and are his, his child, right, at all stages, and that no life is more important than any other. And it, the well-being of the, the unborn is important, including the well-being of mothers and young mothers, who maybe find themselves in situations they didn't intend, which is why I appreciate Shiloh, um, because of their ministry to young mothers. So we value all of life. And there is going to be, in August, um, a primary, and part of that primary vote is going to be a vote on an amendment to the state's constitution. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. Um, but that amendment is about protecting the life of the unborn. And so, um, as followers of Jesus, here's my encouragement to you. When I talked two years ago about how do we engage with stuff going on in society, I talked about Jesus and Paul. Um, they had, I talked about think globally, but act locally. And I can't just pour all of my energy into things that are happening a thousand miles away, but what I can do is invest my life in Emporia and the place I do live. And I can't, you know, I can elect senators, the national stuff, I can't affect a lot of that. But what I can do is I can go to the ballot box and vote on an amendment for the state of Kansas, right? And so that is um, something that God gives me the responsibility. I have the right, I think I have the responsibility to do that. So encourage you to go vote for that. Um, you, take, you take, as a believer, the word of God, and I just challenge you, we need to be educated, we need to have a biblical worldview on these things and you vote um, 
as a, a priest before God who knows the scripture that you go make a vote in alignment with, with the word of God and all of that. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, I trust you guys with that, but uh, I think it is part of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. So just wanted to say something about that. Um, we are in the book of Psalms, and let me get this thing going. Appreciate your prayers, by the way. Um, I know a lot of people have been praying. It'll be a few months before the, the bone heals, but um, so that means this for a little while and not carrying grandkids around for a while. So we're in the book of Psalms, and one thing somebody pointed out to me, there is a worship group. Jordan, you know these guys, right? Poor Bishop Hooper. Like, did you know them at Sterling? Um, they actually have, you can see up there, I can't see it from this distance, but they have been writing every week a, a, a song for every psalm, and they just did Psalm 126, which we're going to do today a couple weeks ago. And so I encourage you, you might want to click on that website if you're interested. Um, I think it's called everypsalm.com. And they've got a cool video that explains what they're doing. And then you can listen. I listened this week to what the rendition of Psalm um, 126. And it was really cool. Uh, that's a cool ministry. Where, do they live in Kansas, Jordan? Do you know where they live? Where are they? Are oh, they in Kansas City area? So... Um, somebody had sent that to me, and so I really uh, recommend it. Um, one more thing about the Psalms. When I had talked two weeks ago, I was really trying to set up the Psalms and help us understand them and how to approach them. And I had talked two weeks ago about that they are really meant to be prayed, and they're, they're just a mix of lament and praise, right? And that there are times in my life when I come to a lament, and I'm not lamenting in my life. I'm on the upswing of the journey instead of on the lament side of the journey, and I just encouraged you to still pray those at that time because you don't know when you're going to need those and they give you words, they give you voice for your own prayers. When Brent and I were at a, an intensive course last week and the speaker said something I'd never thought of, he talked about when he comes to the lament psalms and he says, and I come to one of those, he said, and I don't need to pray it for myself, he says, I will we all know people who are lamenting. Is that not right? We all know people who are hurting, who are in a hard time of life. He said, I will pray that psalm for people that I know who are lamenting. So, that's cool. So, as you go through the psalms, that's another piece of advice I give is to pray laments for people. So, okay. We all love stories of second chances, right? Don't we all love second chance stories? I've got a funny, co a funny story about a coach from an SEC football team. It will go unnamed. It's not Missouri. It's not Missouri, okay? Um, down further south than that. Who was faced with the possibility that one of his star players was going to be deal, declared academically ineligible to play. And so the coach, because he had failed a math, a math class of all things, so he, he went to the math professor and he said, is there any way we can get this guy back on the team or you, you give him a passing grade? And he said, bring him in and with you present, I'll ask him one question and if he can answer it, then I'll give him a passing grade. And so the, they, he got the player and brought him in, and the, the math teacher said, tell me, what is two plus two? And the, the player said, four. And the coach immediately said, give him a second chance, give him a second chance. <laughs> he might coach for Alabama, I'm not sure. Uh, 
I, I was thinking of, we all love stories of second chances, right, and of comebacks. And I thought, what's a, what's a, what's a greater story of a comeback than KU, the, the greatest comeback in NCAA history and the 83 years of the tournament? But I thought, I don't want to do that. You don't want, I don't want to rub that in to anybody who doesn't care for KU. So we won't, we won't go there. <laughs> but I do want to talk about a man named Alfred. Um, Alfred was born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1833. And he was a chemist, an engineer, and an innovator. He inherited from his father a company called Bofors. I don't know how to say it, but that, uh, that was involved in iron and steel production. And he converted it into a, a plant that made armament and cannons and weapons. And he, because of his love of chemistry and all of that, he devoted himself to the study of explosives, especially how to safely manufacture and use nitroglycerin. Um, he held, Alfred held 355 different patents, including uh, the mo our modern dynamite was invented by him. Uh, in 1888, his brother Ludwig was visiting France and died. And a, a newspaper in Paris um, erroneously published Alfred's obituary. They thought it was him. And they condemned him for the business he was in. The obituary was entitled, The Merchant of Death is Dead. And it went on to say, Alfred, who became rich by finding many ways to kill, by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. And Alfred learned of that. He learned of his brother's death, but he also learned of that obituary in, that was like front page of the newspaper in Paris. And he was disappointed with it and became concerned about how he would be remembered what kind of legacy he was, he was living, leaving. Um, so today we're going to look at a psalm about second chances. And we're going to look at Psalm 126. When, um, when I first heard Psalm 126, it was at a revival meeting, and then I heard it in our Bible college. And this text, I've heard it several times, it was always preached that it's about evangelism. Anybody heard this? I'm curious. It would probably be old-timers. Heard this preached about evangelism? There's even a hymn, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, about evangelism. And so that's kind of what I thought it was until I ended up getting in seminary and looked at it more closely in a Hebrew class, and I found out that's not at all what it was about. And I found it actually very beautiful what it actually is about. It's too bad people have made it about something that it wasn't about. And it's a beautiful psalm. So we're going to do Psalm 126 today. If, when you came in, you have got a handout of the text with an outline, um, and I did that because I'm going to preach it out of the New American Standard Bible, and I'm doing that for a reason because the, the New American Standard does an excellent job of showing some things that are in the Hebrew um, that I think are important, and so you can follow along on that piece of paper, or you can turn to Psalm 126. If you're in a phone, you might choose to go to New American Standard, um, and I'm using probably the older version of it. I know there's an updated version of the New American Standard, but... Um, you can follow along with that. Let me give you some background to this psalm. If you know the story of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. And about 1500 B.C., after 400 years of slavery, God set them free in the Exodus, this wonderful miracle with Moses right through the Red Sea. I think most of us know that story. Um, he redeems them. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with them. He gives them his law. And in that covenant, they actually make an agreement with him. They will follow the covenant, and they'll follow the law. And they agree that if they don't, that and they continue to disobey it and not follow it, that an eventual outcome will be, as God had told them, you will be taken away to another country. You'll be invaded and taken away, and they knew this. 
And for about a thousand years, Israel continually violated the covenant, continually. Um, just ongoing idolatry and worship of Canaanite gods, um, injustice, you see it all in the prophets, especially against three groups of people, widows, orphans, and foreigners that live in their midst. Injustice was going on. They continually broke the law. They refused to keep the seven-year Sabbath every seven years, um, a lot of other things. But after centuries of living that way um, and being warned by God through many prophets that an exile was coming, an army would invade them and destroy their country and take people away, and they still didn't. I mean, Melissa talked about sometimes you don't change unless there's a lot of pain. They hadn't had enough pain, I guess. And they ignored the warnings, and how much like us, right? Finally, they were invaded by Babylon, and in 586 B.C., so about a thousand years after the covenant, they were taken away in exile to Babylon, far away. Uh, The city, Jerusalem, was ransacked, almost destroyed, temple destroyed, homes destroyed, people were slaughtered, a lot of the population taken to Babylon, and they were held there in bondage to captivity, captive slaves again, once a year in their nation's history. About 50 years into that, the Persians defeated the Babylonians and took control of that whole empire uh, under the reign of Cyrus the Great. And they were in that exile for about 70 years. And so this psalm we're going to look at, it's all about restoration. That's the background. It's all about restoration. And I want you to know, and second chances, if there was a group that ever didn't deserve a second chance, it was the Israelites, right? If there were people who, like God's like, they don't get a second chance, it's them. Um, the text, I'll just hit briefly, has three important points, um, two important truths. The first is there is the praise for initial restoration of Israel in verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to see the plea for further restoration in verse 4, and then finally there's going to be the promise of complete restoration in verses 5 and 6. And for those of you, if you're kind of nerdy, on that sheet, I've kind of got the, just the Hebrew structure of this is so beautiful. The, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but the ABCs you see on there, the, just some of the structure is really cool of this psalm. Whoever wrote this was very creative. So first, there's that praise for initial restoration. So they're captives in Babylon, and Persia takes power under Cyrus the Great, and like a year into his reign, he makes a decree to allow the people of Israel to go back to their homeland, to go back to their homeland. Um, so verse 1. That's, what, that's the context here. Verse 1, when the Lord brought back the captives of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. I mean, can you imagine being a captive people enslaved in another country? You're taken away. You know, maybe we're taken away. I don't, you know, Russia's the bad guy right now. I don't know. We're, you know, China, Russia, somebody invades us, takes a bunch of us away. And we're not even in our own mind. Can you imagine the joy? It's like, it's like a dream. Are you kidding me? He announces. That never happens. I mean, it would be like Putin tomorrow being like, ah, oh, you know, that was a mistake. I'm sending the, the, the Ukrainians back. And that just doesn't happen. When you take land or you take people, you don't give them up, right? And they're like, it was just like a dream. Like, we couldn't believe it. Our mouths were, were hanging in awe. They're, you know, when they, I'm sure when they first heard, they're like, are you kidding me? We get to go home? Um, and, and so they were full of joyful shouting, it says. We just sang, the first song we sang is, there's joy in the house of the Lord. I mean, that's what it was like that day. So then the second part of verse 2, it even gets better. The second part of verse 2. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So now the nations are chiming in. 
they're not only the ones exclaiming this and shouting this. They're not just the ones saying, the Lord's done great things for us. The nations are saying that. Um, and everybody knows only God's hand could do this. In fact, if you look at the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, it says that Cyrus says that God actually spoke to him and told him to do this. Um, so even the nations around them are, are like in awe of what has happened. And I love verse 3. You know, so the Lord has done great things for them in verse 2. I love verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. He has. And we're joyful. And so began three waves of return of the Israelites Zerubbabel in 538 B.C., about 43,000 of the Israelites went back. Ezra in 458 B.C., about 5,000, and then Nehemiah in 445 B.C., another 2,000. Um, so they're going back in these three waves, returning home. And yet, despite their cause for celebration, full restoration was lacking because when they got home, they got home to a city in rubbles, homes broken down, fields overgrown with weeds because they hadn't been taken care of. Um, the walls of the city are broken down. The temple is destroyed. So when they returned home, nothing was as it was when it was left. And so we have that praise for initial restoration. In verse 4, we have the plea for further restoration. Here's what they say. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as the streams in the Negev. Lord, make our restoration complete, just like, that, just like the Negev. And this is such a powerful... I told you two weeks ago there's so much imagery in the Psalms. And I talked about knowing the history, how important it was um, to understand what we're reading. The Negev is located in the south of Israel. Let me show you. Um, oh, this, by the way, that's the return. If you have no sense of Babylon, that's a long journey from Babylon to Israel. There's kind of a, somebody did a painting of it. This is the Negev. Look at that. Just a barren desert. It's in the south of Israel, and it is just, it's just bone dry. It is so arid there. Um, and it's full of these, what are called wadis. I don't know if you can see it. They're like these gullies um, that cut through it. Um, here's a picture of one of those gullies, just full of these kinds of things. And they're like gashes in the ground. It's just ugly, and it's stark there. And late in the fall, early in the winter, there's a rainy season that hits Israel. And when the rains come, the torrents of rain fall like a downpour. It radically alters the landscape of the Negev, radically alters it. The gullies quickly fill with torrents of water. I mean, like of that picture, I really love this one. Suddenly just water is streaming in those places in torrents. But not only that, it bursts into life. Um, it goes from being totally barren to blooming. This is, I, just, I found multiple pictures of the flowers in the Negev, like the day after a rain. Um, there are few transformations that are as dramatic. It's a wonderful picture of their cry for full restoration. Can you make us like the Negev? We want to bloom again. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Atacam Desert in Chile. Pat and I were watching on something on PBS about a month ago. And this is the, it's the driest place on earth. And they'll get a rain like the Negev. And I, this is what happens in the Atacam the, that, the next day. It blooms. Look at this picture. That's what it looks like. So it would look like desert. And the day after the rains, the, these things are like they're in the ground and they bloom and it's really beautiful. That's what, that's, what, that's what the psalmist is saying. Would you restore our fortunes like that? Can you do that to us? Um, we just sang the song. Uh, Melissa, thank you for that song. There are no deserts 
that your streams, let me see, there are no deserts that your streams of love can't run to. You tell the wasteland to bloom again. We can be whole again because it's your nature. So isn't this a beautiful picture, this verse, to restore us like the Negev? I, I just love it. So they have this dramatic plea for restoration. And then we come to verses 5 and 6. We come to God's promise to them. The promise of complete restoration. And I love this because he uses agricultural imagery, something they knew very well. And, you know, I grew up in Hayes, on the edge, uh, played in the fields a lot. You see agriculture, right? I think we understand it to a degree, not as much as people that are engaged. Um, But I love that he's using this agricultural imagery. And so in verse 5, he says, those who sow in tears sowing their crop, and back then you did it by hand, shall harvest with joyful shouting. Those who plant their crops when they get home, with eyes full of tears, I think for regret, for what the nation had done to Israel, how they had betrayed him, for regret at how their sin had, how it had cost the land and their homes, and they saw the effect of their sin. Um, regret, tears of regret, I think, for how their lives, the way they had lived, had impacted God's glory and His fame negatively. So he says, if you sow in tears, you will harvest with joyful shouting. One who goes here and there weeping, carrying his bag of seed, that one, the, the New American Standard does really good with this. One who goes here and there weeping, it's the back and forth of sowing seed. In Hebrew, it's literally, it says, walking he walks. Just as walking as he walks, doing his seed. It's continuous actions, what it's doing. The person who's continuously working, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy. Um, the, the NASB in saying shall indeed is trying to reflect the Hebrew again. It says coming he will come. It's a real emphasis on the, the finality of the reality that it will happen. And that's why the double shall. You notice the shall at the beginning of verse 5 and the shall here. There shall be a harvest of joyful shouting. They shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with them. And for those of us who aren't that well acquainted with sheaves, um, that's a sheave or a shock of wheat. As they would harvest it, they would bundle it up to carry uh, You've heard of the WSU shockers, that's what it is. It's a shock of wheat is what it's supposed to represent. Um, so, that they'll come again bringing their sheaves, their harvest with them. And so ends a beautiful psalm. Is that, is that not a beautiful psalm? Is that not powerful? You know, as you can see, when you look at the scripture, if you look at like the sheet I have or your Bible, I, I put them in bold on the sheet. You see a word or a form of a word repeated multiple times, and it's kind of like, you know, I love uh, bagpipes, and when you hear a bagpipe played, there's that underneath drone sound, they call it a drone sound, that's kind of going on underneath the tune. The, the drone of this psalm is the word joy. You see joy, joyful, many times. Um, that's kind of what's going on underneath all this, and it's exactly what God had foretold the people through Isaiah and Jeremiah, through other prophets, but specifically those two, the one day while in captivity, the promise they would have joy again. In Isaiah 50, 11, this is what God said, that those, again, before the return has happened, those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. 
In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 19, it says, from them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. And why not joy? Is there not a better story than a story of second chances, of restoration? And that is the theme of this psalm. It's restoration. And the God is the God of second chances. And in this psalm, God is assuring us that full restoration is possible. Full restoration is possible. That according to Psalm 103, 4 to 5, God is the one who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Is that not good news that God is the God of second chances? Is that not good news? Is that not good news? I learned four important things from this psalm. Number one, that restoration glorifies God. That's the first thing. We saw it in verse 2. The God setting of Israel free this second time. In their national history, it demonstrated His grace and His power and His faithfulness and His love on a world stage, on a world stage. It led to a confession by the nations, and God is after the nations, you know that? He cares for the nations. He wants the nations. The nations see it and they respond. All throughout the Psalms, the nations continually mock Israel. Oh, where is your God? Continually. But in this in this return from exile, the nations stand up and say, the Lord did a great thing for you. And they became trophies of God's grace. Anytime God restores you or gives you a second chance, you become a trophy of His grace, right? Of His grace. All of us who received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, who've gone from death to life, who've been saved from our sin, who've had that second chance of life with Him, we are all trophies of grace. Do you know that, of His grace? We're all trophies of His grace. And we're meant to be people that people stand agap, their, you know, their mouth agap in awe of what God does through us. We're all trophies for His glory. We live for His fame, for the spotlight to be on Him, Right? that he would be known for his love, for his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness. Amen? Yep. So it glorifies God. Secondly, and you need to add two words if you got the sheet. I wrote, restoration involves hard work and takes time. Just add to the front of that, many times. Many times, restoration involves hard work and it takes time. So the initial action was God's grace. God laying on the heart of Cyrus to set them free. That was God's doing. But restoration is... His initiative, He's the pursuer. We're going to sing about it in a minute. He's the one who pursues me. But it doesn't mean that I have nothing to do in the restoration process, um, that I am involved in it. The people of Israel, they had, they had to get off of their bums, right? And they had to, to journey, a long, arduous journey back to Israel. And when they got there, they had to rebuild homes and replant fields. And so many times, restoration requires toil and time, toil and time, blood, sweat, and even tears. Full restoration is not always immediate. Sometimes it's slow and arduous. That makes sense. It was that way for them. It took some work. It requires prolonged intentionality on my part. I know gardening does. Does not gardening for those four or five months take just intentionality, daily intentionality, and that's the imagery he uses, farming, how much more, you're around the clock, but restoration's possible, okay, it is possible, and that's the third point that I learned, restoration can be complete, this is what I learned from this text, it can be complete, full restoration is always possible with God, the Bible's chock full of these stories, right, 
of, of Moses, of Adam and Eve, of, of uh, Jacob, of Peter, of John Mark, of a thief on a cross, of Samson, of Gideon, of David, of people who blew it, who needed restoration, who needed a second chance, whom God restored, and who became fully used by Him after, after. The Bible's full of those kinds of people. Full kind of those people. Doesn't mean I maybe don't, that I don't have to live with consequences from past decisions because David had to live with the consequences of his adultery with Bathsheba. But God fully used him and restored him after that. God can give you a new and a full beginning. He can fully restore any of us and use us again. Fourth, we must model God in this. That's the fourth thing I learned. We must model God. God's in the business of giving second chances. So must we. Is that not right? So must we. We must do this to people. That if God has restored a person, if God, if God has said a person is not irredeemable, that they are not unrestorable, that they're not unforgivable, how dare we treat that same person as if they're unforgivable, irredeemable, or unrestorable? How do you imagine God feels if somebody that he's trying to restore back to a place, but we treat them as unrestorable? How do you think as a father, how do you think he feels about that? You know, as a parent, how would you feel if somebody treated your child as if they're irredeemable? Doesn't mean we can't be discerning in how we relate to people. I'm not saying that, and that's for another time. But I want you to know that restoration is the way of God. It is in his nature, and it's the way of Jesus. In Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Peter said to Jesus one time, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven, 70 times seven. Ongoing forgiveness and restoration. This is his heart. I want you to know Jesus takes this seriously because in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, he says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. I mean, this is serious to him, okay? So, you know, people, here's why this is so important, I think. People are concrete to us, right? Uh, yesterday, the deacons gathered for prayer over the church, and one of them shared with a small group of us how, you know, that week he had blown it with his wife, had, uh, because we're real humans, by the way, all of us, I mean, you know that, had gone to his wife seeking forgiveness and how she, he says, she just always so graciously offers it. And just seeing him moved by that, and it just made me think about this, that, that when humans in front of you are willing to restore you, that they're so concrete, right? Because they're in front of you. It's so important that we be those kind of people. People need people in front of them to do what God is doing. So here's my wrap-up with all this. Um... Can I take you the book of Joel really quick? I was going to skip this, but I think I want to do it. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Joel. If, if you're new to the Bible, and I know there are a number of people here who are, it's like, so you're in the Psalms in the middle, Joel is to the right, I don't know, you hit kind of Proverbs, and you get some really long ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you've got a few, there's Hosea, and Joel is right after that. If you look at Joel chapter 1. There's a beautiful imagery, and this is all about the same time period in history. In Joel 1.1, it says this, 
the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Skip down to verse 4. The imagery is really beautiful. This is about an invading army, but it's beautiful. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it's been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. So it's talking about Babylon. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines, ruined my fig trees, stripped off their bark, thrown it away, leaving their branches white like everything is stripped bare because of their sin. Go to chapter 2. So I want to talk, because Joel is about restoration. Go to chapter 2. Look at verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. And then skip down to verse 23. He's going to repeat the locust thing here. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the autumn rains because He's faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. You see that? I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locust, the locust swarm, my great army that I, that I send among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be put to shame. I will repay you for the years the locust has eaten. We just sang in the song, you restore the years that shame has stolen. The NLT translates that, verse 25, I will give you back what you lost. And what I really love in the NIV where it says, I will repay you, that's the Greek, it's a root, the Greek word shalom, which is everything being made right again, being made whole. God's like, I will shalom you again. That's the kind of restoration he wants to give. All right, um, I am sure there's somebody here today who's blown it, because I have more times than I want to admit. And somebody, though, who maybe is wondering, is full restoration possible? And I want you to know that you've never gone too far from God, that He cannot redeem you, restore you, forgive you, give you a second chance. You're never too far. And I offer Psalm 126 as proof of that. It was composed by people who had utterly blown it and yet were fully restored. And what I love about this psalm is this song of testimony of the God of second chances. It became a song that the Jewish people sang multiple times every year as they took a trip to Jerusalem. Two weeks ago, I talked about the types of psalms. That wasn't without reason, okay? That wasn't without reason. This psalm at the top says a song of ascent. There are 15 of these from 120 to 134, songs of ascent. Songs of ascent were songs that were put to music and sung by the Jewish people as they did pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for a festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. They would sing these songs as they went to Jerusalem. They sang these songs on pilgrimage, on journey, as they journeyed there as a as a memorial to God and His grace and His love and His faithfulness. Songs sung on a journey. Is that not cool? And they were written for our journey. 
And that's why I love Psalm 126 so much. Because it's a psalm I need on my journey. Do we all not need the message of this psalm? Do not all of us need Psalm 126 like in our belt that we pull out occasionally. It's a great psalm. So Alfred was disappointed with what he read in the obituary. Deeply concerned with how he'd be remembered, the kind of legacy he was leaving. So he made a decision. Sold the business of making the armament, the weapons, the dynamite, and all of that. And then, upon his, before his death, he set aside the bulk of his estate, Alfred did, Alfred Nobel, to, to create and establish the Nobel Prizes to be awarded annually. And so since 1901, the prize has honored men and women for outstanding achievements in physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, works in peace, and economics. That obituary was a second chance for him. That was his second chance at life, so to speak. So, I'm wondering today, are you here feeling like failed or fallen? Um, Just struggling with the same stinking ongoing sin that you struggle with all the time. Maybe there's people here today, you've strayed from God, hearts grown cold kind of lost the first love, right? As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I just want you to know if you're here today like that, that yours can be the next story of a new beginning, of a second chance. Small as it might be, it's a beginning nonetheless. And I want you to remember that with God, history is not destiny. Isn't that that cool? That history is not destiny. That he's the God of new beginnings, of second chances, and not just second, of third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and multiple chances. That's the kind of God he is. It's in his nature. It's in his nature. So if the worship team, if you guys can come on out. Um, I'm going to, can, can you take this? No, I'm just going to leave it in the chair, Adam. Thank you. Samuel. Brother Samuel here. There he is. He's going to help so you guys can set up. Um, I just want you to know that with God, every moment is a second chance. Do you know that right now is a second chance for you? That today is a second chance? Um, Because we've all fallen. We've all failed. We've all stumbled. We all struggle, right? We all walk away from the Lord. We all do stupid things. and I just want you to know that if, if that is you today, if that's you now, that today is your day, that God invites uh, you to come to him for that second chance. Because he wants to restore. He longs to restore. Just like the Negev, right? He, he wants to take that desert and make it bloom. You can start today because today's a new day. That's why I love Lamentations 3, 22, 23. Uh, I think Christie's here. Can't read this without thinking of Tim. Because of the Lord's, it's because of the Lord's great mercy that we're not consumed. It's because of His mercy. Wow! And thank goodness for that. For His compassions, they never fail. They never fail. They're new every morning. God, great is Your faithfulness. That's the God that we worship. So, 
if I want you to know, if you don't, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you haven't made that decision yet to accept Him. This could be the day that you're like, I'm I'm in death and I want to go from death to life. I want to have eternal life. Maybe this is the day that Jesus would say, Come, because I can give you a totally new life. You can be born again, and I can alter your life. So if that's you, I'd love to have that conversation. And there may be somebody here who follows Jesus. You've gone from death to life, but for whatever reason, maybe you're in a place you're like, I need a second chance today. I could kind of use a new beginning. If that's you, I really would invite you um, to, to respond to him today. Um, I have some people I've invited to be here for prayer. Can you guys come on up? I was going to kind of have you do it at the end of the service, but I've got a, some couples, if they could just kind of come. If you would like to pray with somebody during this song, just um, like I've kind of blown it and I'd like to to be restored that these guys are our spiritual leadership they would love to pray with you if you guys don't mind after the worship maybe in room not five and six we had talked about somewhere I forgot where we talked about uh, maybe in the counseling room in the back maybe if you guys could go back there and if, if you don't want to come up front but you want to pray with somebody um, somebody will be back there so um, if you're able would you stand would you stand David Benner in the book Surrender to Love wrote this the God Christians worship loves sinners redeems failures he delights in second chances and fresh starts he never tires of pursuing lost sheep and waiting for prodigal sons that's the God we serve and that's his nature so let's worship just to echo what Garen said, um, if this is a day for you, you feel that tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart or in your thoughts, I want to encourage you because we can have other voices that come in and say, oh, that's not really the Holy Spirit. Oh, this is not really for me. Um, don't listen to it. Just listen to the Holy Spirit and do whatever. Pray with them now. Pray with them after. Grab someone. Don't miss the moment. second chances. We don't want to miss that today. Seal it on our hearts. We come to you. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Isn't our God
God of second chances. So 12th, may, may we be people of second chances. May you experience the second chances that God wants to offer his full restoration. May we be people who offer second chances to people because our, we live in a cancel culture, don't we? Where when you've done, made a mistake, you're done, and God is not a cancel culture God. Isn't that great? Can we like, can we like tell God, thank you, you're not a cancel culture God. So 12th, let us model that. Let us live into it. And if you're leaving today and you just need to be like, Lord, I've walked away, my heart's cold, let today be the day to restore that. So, Father, I just pray, I thank you for this psalm, I thank you for the reality of who you are. I thank you for the worship we've done, for this, not just this song that was written in Psalm 126, the songs we've sung, and all of this. I thank you for the second chances you've given me, for how you gave me new life. 
when I had betrayed you and rebelled and walked away and you gave your son, even though I was your enemy. And so we just want to be people of second chances and we pray this in the name of Jesus, the embodiment of second chances. We pray in his name, amen. All right, 12. It's good to see you guys. You are sent.